We are back with On Second Thought from GPB and Virginia Prescott. Poet Jericho Brown's newest book, The Tradition, was a finalist for this year's National Book Awards. Lauded by critics as stunning, riveting, and one of the best poetry collections of 2019, the gut-wrenching personal poems in his latest collection explore complex tensions between love and violence and masculinity and trauma, all within the LGBTQ Black experience of the South. Brown was born in Shreveport, Louisiana, went to school in New Orleans, and has lived everywhere from Houston to San Diego to Iowa. Today, he is director of the creative writing program at Emory University in Atlanta and joins me in the studio. Jericho, welcome. Hey, thank you so much. That's a, I love that introduction. Well, that's all you. I like that. <laughs> that it makes me sound better than I feel. Come you through. Should, <laughs> you should just tape that and, you know, whenever you're feeling the yeah. riveting, stunning yeah. collection of poetry, yeah. we, you can just play that for yourself. Yeah, I do love this book, so I'm very grateful. It is a beautiful, it like I do. beautiful yeah. book, and this is the, your third collection of poetry. It's now, my I third think? book. Uh-huh. Wow! So, and yeah. and you told your editor before you wrote it, you weren't going to have any new material. Oh that my year. God! Yes, I am. Um, my my editor, Michael Wiegers at Copper Canyon Press. Uh, they published my second book, The New Testament, and obviously this book, The Tradition. He called. He started calling me in August, and every thirty days or so, he would call and say. Do you have something that'll be ready for us to bring out in 2019? He's like, send me your poems, send me what you're working on. And I was, you know, working on poems little by little here and there, uh, but things were going really slowly. So he called me in August. He he called me in September. He called me in um, October. He called me in November. And every time I would say in November, when I talked to him, I said, Michael, you're really making me nervous here. (laughs) You got to stop with this. It's making me feel bad about the fact that I don't have anything. And he left me alone. And um, something happened between Thanksgiving of 2017 and Martin Luther King Day of 2018. I wrote um, 40-something poems, which is a lot of poems, especially for somebody like me. And they were strong. I felt in my spirit that I was really doing good work with, with these poems. Sometimes they would come out whole without very much a revision to do. And so I gave him a call in January and I said, um, you still got that space in 2019? And he said, no. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, he said, I'll look at what you got, but it's doubtful at this point. I sent it to him. He got as excited about the poems as I was and Mm -hmm. he decided to bring the book out. So I'm really glad. Why do do you think it all poured out at that time? Well, I think there were a few things happening. Uh, you know, art feeds art. And one thing that was going on is that I was reading uh, books that I I was falling in love with. You know, Claudia Rankin's Citizen had come out. I was seeing films that I was falling in love with. Um, Barry Jenkins' Moonlight had come Mm -hmm. out. So it was the kind of thing where there was all of this external influence coming in. Uh, And then I was also reading more fiction than I had ever read. I'm a, a professor at Emory University. I direct the creative writing program there, and we were hiring fiction writers. And so I was reading uh, 300 applications of people who were applying for that job, and that meant reading their stories and their novels. And it was the most fiction that I had ever read in a very short period of time. And my, I really do believe that my response to that was to write poetry to, in order to get away from so many words, so much prose. That's so on interesting. The pre- on the page to sort of go back into myself in my own first voice. So I was reading this one kind of writing and I always needed to retreat from it to my poems. And my poems were saving my life, but they were also killing me. 
I mean, there are literal text messages in my phone to my friends at, you know, 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. where I was saying, these poems are going to kill me if I die. Use this as a text message <laughs> to show. Because <laughs> I was up all night. I would, I would go in for meetings at 9 and 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, I, would, I would teach my classes. I would be at Emory all day. And then I would go home and I would work around the clock on these poems. They were calling out to me in ways that I couldn't stop. I was writing poems on elevators, pulling my car over to get poems written down. And so it was a moment of inspiration that I was so grateful for, Mm -hmm. but also completely exhausted by, you know. Well, I want to just key into the Moonlight thing for a minute because there's so many, it's a beautiful film and deservedly won the Oscar for for the movie of the year. And in these poems, Touch between men, black men especially, yeah. is 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 aggressive and violent, and there is so much tenderness in mm-hmm. Moonlight. Mm-hmm. I wonder if those things played into how you saw these poems coming out of you. Yeah, well, one of the things that happens in Moonlight that I do think is interesting is that the two young men who are in love also have a moment of violence, and I always um, I'm interested in telling the truth. I'm interested in us seeing things. Uh, for what they really are. And I think that's what poems are about, and that's what my poems try to do. People want poems to be Hallmark cards, and they are not. Mm. You know, Hallmark cards have us believe that emotion is only one way. You get a Mother's Day card, and all the Mother's Day cards generally say the same thing. You mm-hmm. get a Father's Day card, you get all the Father's Day cards generally say the same thing. Uh, but nobody feels one way about their father. <laughs> your love for your father is a colored love of various textures. Um, and that's what I want to bring out in my poems. I want to bring out that the points at which violence intersects with tenderness. Uh, and that's part of what the book is about. I also think it's really important for us to m- remember that all art has to have conflict in order for us to enjoy the celebration uh, that comes at the end of a book or the end of a movie or the end of a poem. It's because there has been conflict before that. And uh, there's something in literature in particular where we really cannot have light unless there is indeed darkness. So uh, often when people read poems, they're like, oh, these are so dark. And the truth is that they're doing the same work that our lives are. Are our lives dark? And how can we make them more light is what I think the poems are asking. Well, there is a lot of darkness. There's this mixture of classical myth Mm -hmm. and American history, the darkness of American history, especially of the black experience, and of your own experience that come together in this book. And there are a lot of references. The word dark is used in in the book a lot. So, So I'm wondering if that experience was part of, you know, what was killing you, that darkness was coming out. Yeah, I think... um I think part of part of what was killing me is that for all of the darkness, I always had to find the light. Uh, I'm, I want my poems to be whole. If I look at something and I only see that which is ugly about it, then I have not seen it. That is not true for anything. And if I look at something and I see only that which is joyous and uh, and celebratory about it, I haven't seen it. And I want to look at things as they as they really are. You know, I was thinking about this, what you were saying about American history and, you know, there's Greek myth and there's all these things coming together in the book. And I think that's really a a good example of of what I mean. I want to cross time and space with my poems and I want to read poems that cross time and space Mm. that look at us uh, for all we've ever been and all that we are now. And writing poems helps us make our world more clear. Things are pretty chaotic 
when you put things down in a poem, you create an order for that chaos. And I'm interested in that supposed order for an otherwise chaotic world. Yeah. I'm speaking with the poet Jericho Brown. His latest book of poetry is called The Tradition and was named a National Book Award finalist this year, top of a number of best poetry books of the year list. But let's actually hear a poem. That would be wonderful. Let's hear uh, from this is called Four Day in the Morning. Yeah. Four Day in the Morning. My mother grew morning glories that spilled onto the walkway toward her porch because she was a woman with land who showed as much by giving it color. She told me I could have whatever I worked for. That means she was an American. But she'd say it was because she believed in God. I am ashamed of America and confounded by God. I thank God for my citizenship in spite of the timer set on my life to write these words. I love my mother. I love black women who plant flowers as sheepish as their sons. By the time the blooms unfurl themselves for a few hours of light, the women who tend them are already at work. Blue, I'll never know who started the lie that we are lazy, but I'd love to wake that bastard up at 40 in the morning, toss him in a truck, and drive him under God past every bus stop in America to see all those black folk waiting to go work for whatever they want. A house? A boy to keep the lawn cut? Some color in the yard? My God, we leave things green. That's the poem, Four Day in the Morning, read by Jericho Brown. It's from yeah. his new book, The Tradition. Yeah. Wowie. Yeah. So you've, you've been sharing these poems all over the world since you've yeah. been on book tour. What, what kind of response do you get to that poem? It's really an interesting thing because uh, I think it's one of these wonderful examples of how the, the personal and the particular and the specific can indeed speak to the human and the so-called universal. Uh, there's this curiosity about the title, first of yes, all. Yes, I was going know? to ask you about that. It's um, Forday, F-O-R-E-D-A-Y. Yeah. I don't even know what that means. Yeah, I know, right? It's hilarious, <laughs> right? Uh, but it simply means that time that's early in the morning where uh, and you know about this time in the morning, Virginia, the people who have gotten this uh, room we're in together have gotten here at 4 day in the morning. Right. The people who are waiting at bus stops to catch a bus to make the breakfast for the cafeteria that's attached to the building. Uh, and I'm sort of interested in that uh, so-called class of people without whom we would not be able to live our lives. Uh, and that's that's part of what the poem is about and about thinking um, about our assumptions, about the way the world works, about the way work works, about who's doing what kind of work, about what kind of work is hard work, um, and about possibility, about the myth of America, um, the idea that you can indeed uh, work for whatever you want, when there are people, obviously, in our nation who have a lot that they never worked for. They're born into it, you know, um, and there are many of us who will work hard our entire lives and not necessarily amass some idea of capitalist wealth. Uh, and that's part of what I think the poem is about. And, and people seem to respond to it in a great way. It's a poem that first appeared in Time magazine, mm -hmm. which was one of the most beautiful that's, things that's to happen a... for me because I had something I could send to my, my literal mama. <laughs> you know, I could send my mama this thing in Time magazine that was about her. I worked on all these poems in the book that are 
ultimately about my mother. And I really felt like, you know, this is my third book, and I really felt like I finally got my mom right. <laughs> well, that's beautiful. I mean, yeah. Time Magazine is a huge deal. But, yeah. but I'm remembering in one of the poems, I think it's about the loss of your father, you and your mom are sitting on opposite ends of the couch, you know, like you do. Yeah. And there's this kind of blank space yeah. filled in by the absence of your father. Yeah. Uh, there is trauma that you experience as a child, it mm-hmm. sounds like. Mm-hmm. But also the trauma that's handed mm-hmm. down from generation yeah. to generation to yeah. generation. Yeah. When you say you got your mom right, what were you finding in her experience that, I don't know, spoke to you that, or that came through you? Well, I think what you're saying about that which comes from generations, uh, I think that's what I got from her. Um, one of the things about the book is that it's dedicated to my mother's, oh, one of my mother's older sisters. And my mother was one of 13 children. My mother is the daughter of of sharecroppers. Um, as young as I am, my grandparents on both sides of my family were sharecroppers, you know? Um, and I think uh, this book really allowed me to see both my mother and my father in ways that I could be much more tender toward their experience based on their ancestors, our ancestors, what they had to go through, you know? In the United States, we have this wonderful phrase that I love, um, get away with. That's how we feel about our taxes. That's how my students feel about their grades. <laughs> uh, my students figure out pretty quickly a 90 is an A. So when you make a 91, you have expended unnecessary energy. Mm-hmm. Do you understand that? is the American way. But then some of us don't get to experience that part of the American way in the same way others do, right? Right, but I'm thinking about you as grandson of sharecroppers, now teaching at Emory University, traveling all around the world. I mean, in some ways, hasn't that American dream come true for you? I think so, yeah. I think it has come true uh, for me, but I think at a different cost, right? Um, I think the American dream coming true for for someone who is the grandson of sharecroppers means that it came true for someone who is the grandson of sharecroppers. Mm-hmm. You had to have the system of sharecropping in place for the American dream come, to come true. Do you know what sharecropping is? Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, people are always excited, like, oh, you did these wonderful things and you're the descendant of slaves. Um, excuse me, exactly. Mm-hmm. Hugely problematic here. I understand myself to be an exception, right? Uh, What I'm able to do, who knows why I'm able to do it? Um, And I think we have to be really clear about black exceptionalism. Uh, It's wonderful to think about about black magic, but we also have to think about exceptionalism. We have to think about the fact that there are whole peoples out there who are working very hard and yet still suffering in this nation to eat. And we know that that's not about people not working, do you, do you understand? Yes, and it's, or, it's sort of like the, the people who are getting on the bus early yeah. in the morning that yeah. are sort of invisible to many yeah. people. Yeah. Um, but I'm wondering for you, what is it like, you know, bearing your soul through these poems and then going into a classroom as a professor where your students presumably know deeply personal details yeah. of your life? Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't read the work at all, which I find hilarious because <laughs> I'm like, why are you listening to me? You haven't even read my poems. But, yeah, I think um, – it's, it's part of what you give. You know, you got to lose something for anything that you want. I think my experience with being a poet is that in order to have some successes, I had some failures. And part of my failures had to do with the fact that I wasn't willing to give my life away to poetry. You have to give yourself completely. And you once it becomes a part of your life, what you give for it is also what you get back from it. 
It's daily. It's regular. It's normal. So me being able to say a personal, a so-called personal thing in a poem turns out to actually be a part of my daily life. And what I'm trying to teach my students is that that which is personal ultimately becomes nothing new under the sun. Uh, There's a way that uh, every poem I've ever written, I've also had people email me or come up to me to tell me, oh, that happened to me. How did you know about that? I thought that only happened to me. Do you understand? I do. And I'm wondering, actually, in all of the readings that you've been doing around the world, Mm -hmm. what is the most memorable bit of feedback you heard from somebody? Yeah, well, I will say this. Um, The trouble of police violence in the United States seems a feeling throughout the world. Um, Traveling to Asian countries, traveling to countries in Europe, um, I have found that people have the same tenor of fears uh, about police and police violence and police control um, and the police state, as many of us do here. Although here we have um, other troubles because it's based on race in certain ways. Uh, So it's interesting to me that everyone has these feelings about being uh, controlled by their by their government. Uh, And, you know, I have I have feelings about that here in the United States. So I'm glad that I've written a book that speaks to that, not just here, but for people who are part of the resistance all over the world. Jericho Brown, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Jericho Brown is director of the Creative Writing Program at Emory University. His latest collection of poems is called The Tradition. You can find out more on the book at gpbnews.org. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Mary Lynn Ryan is our executive producer. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks for your time and for listening to On Second Thought.